0: Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. So glad you're with us. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And as you do so, let me ask sort of a provocative question, so to speak. And here it is. What is the best sermon that you have ever heard? Now, besides the ones preached here, of course, Right. What's the best sermon you have ever heard? You know, for, for me, um, there, there's a couple, but one was preached at a pastor's conference about 10 years ago by uh, the president of RTS, uh, Ligon Duncan. It was all about broken dreams and life and ministry, and it's just been one of those sermons I've sort of assimilated into my soul, and, and maybe you have a sermon or two like that as well, but let's be honest, because we're nothing but honest here at Four Oaks, right? Of the thousands of sermons that most of you have listened to or sat under or been to a retreat or a podcast or maybe even here at Four Oaks, let's be honest, you don't remember most of them. And and I'm just going to tell you that is okay, right? That is okay. Because preaching is, on a weekly basis, is meant to spur us on to loving good deeds. It's meant to reorient our lives, and it sort of serves as a repository of truth over time that we sort of assimilate and accumulate, even when we're not fully aware of it. But I think a, a, good, a good piece of advice as it relates to sermon listening uh, comes from John Piper. He says this about books. He said, if you read a book, if you can carry one sentence away from that book, and it sort of sticks with you, that's a good thing to, to aim for. And I think it's sort of the same thing with preaching. If you can come away with one sentence to sort of cling to that week—I'm just—one week, okay— then I think that is a a noble um, aspiration. And so maybe your one sentence that you carry with you this week is that you need to carry one sentence with you. I don't know, right? But one sermon, though, that everyone remembers, one sermon that everyone knows, even non-believers, even non-Christians can quote significant portions of this sermon back to you, is of course, the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe the most famous sermon ever preached, if not for any other reason than Jesus preached it. And as part of our sermon series going through the book of Matthew, we're gonna be camping out on this most famous of sermons for the next several months. We're gonna be in Matthew five through seven. And and let me tell you what we wanna do today. I wanna just introduce The sermon today. I want to sort of give us a sense of an overview so that you can know how to best situate yourself in it and how to study along with us over the next several months. And there's a couple of resources I'm going to point you to. One is a book that you'll find out at the Resource Center called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing by Jonathan Pennington. He is a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, and even though he's a Baptist, we still love him. Um, he is a pastor also at Sojourn East up in Louisville. And just heads up, this is not your little precious moments devotional where you're going to get a little nugget. I mean this is you're going into the deep end of the pool here, right? But if you really want to dig in and get sort of the overall background, along with just some great commentary as we go through, this is a, this is a great resource. The second resource is we're going to be—we've had a couple of weeks break from our pastoral devotionals, but we're starting those back up tomorrow morning, and we also are going to be taking those times to really dig into this sermon in preparation for the next week's message. So so those are a couple of resources, and again, what we're going to do this morning is read the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount as sort of a, an introduction. We're not going to unpack them in detail. I just want to grab some nuggets from them to introduce this, and we'll get into the meat of the sermon next week. But if you can, i to invite you to stand, and let's read Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, as we begin our sermon journey through the greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew 5, seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, the disciples, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Father, for some of us who've been in church for a while, these are probably super familiar verses. In fact, so familiar, we're not even quite sure what they say, what they mean. They are so otherworldly. They are so upside down. So much in this sermon, from a human perspective, let's be honest, doesn't make sense. And so, Father, we pray that over these next several months, your Holy Spirit would pierce through our cynicism, pierce through our our numbness, pierce through our familiarity, and that we could come to experience anew the life-giving words that you call your disciples to who follow you as King Jesus. And so, Lord, give us your grace. Bless our time this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. You know that alliteration is one of my favorite things in sermon outlines, but you will have none of it this morning at all, right? Because this is going to be a little more teachy than, than preachy, if I can say it that way. And what I wanted to do is sort of grab four phrases, four words out of these first 12 verses as a way of talking about the sermon on the Mount as a whole, and the things that I think are important to keep in mind as we walk through this over the next several weeks together. And and here's the first phrase I want to want to talk about. You look, see in verse 1, it talks about seeing the crowds. Seeing the crowds, our first point. He opened his mouth and taught them. Now, to understand the significance of the crowds as it relates to the Sermon on the Mount, It'll probably be helpful for us just to review quickly where we've been in Matthew's gospel. It helps us understand that Jesus doesn't just drop a sermon, right, and drop the mic and walk off the stage. There's a whole flow of what's happening here. We call this sermon series, going through Matthew, King and Kingdom, because, as we said, Matthew's purpose in this gospel, his purpose for you in your life— is that you will recognize Jesus as king. That he indeed is the long-awaited Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament. And that's Matthew's purpose. He wants to show you that Jesus is God's anointed king, and by thus implication, your anointed king. So Matthew takes us through the lineage of the king, and then talks about how Jesus was worshipped as a king. And now he survives an attack by another rival king. And then as he grows up, he's anointed and presented publicly as the king by John the Baptist. And then he goes into the wilderness and is tested as the king. And then he comes out proclaiming the message of the king. And here's Jesus' essential message. He says, repent For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, we think about repentance as woodenly not sinning or doing what is right. But for for Jesus, repentance encompasses so much more, right? It's a whole life, whole heart call. It is a proclamation from Jesus to all of us to reorient every aspect of our lives to his kingship. That there is a new king on the block, so to speak. And that as the king, he is ushering in his kingdom. And what we've seen is that to, to sort of demonstrate this, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to demonstrate it. What we've seen in Matthew is that be, that Jesus begins doing the works of the kingdom, right? He's healing. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's He's exercising demons. Sin is being pushed back. Darkness is being pushed, at. The ki- pushed back. The kingdom is breaking through. Now, the kingdom here is a spiritual kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. Jesus says, I'll deal with the political kingdom at the end of time when I come. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am Lord. But right now, let's start with your heart. And that's, that's the central proclamation of this kingdom. And, and as we look at the text, look at verse 1, it says, crowds are seeing the crowds. In other words, thousands have responded. And they are now caught up in this, and they are following him. And when it says that his disciples came to him, I don't think he means just the 12, okay? Okay. Because sometimes we can think of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus calls his 12 disciples to him, and everybody else is kind of there eavesdropping. Disciples can be a generic word. It just means followers. But I think it's very clear that this is a sizable crowd of hundreds, if not thousands. Listen to Matthew 7, 28 and 29. This is the end of the sermon. Listen to what Matthew says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds... See that? We're astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, so do you see what's happened here? Jesus has been going around doing the works of the kingdom, and this has everybody's attention, because everybody loves a show, right? Everybody loves a miracle. Everybody does a little loves a little magic trip. The crowds are on fire. they are coming they 're coming to see what 's happening. But now that he 's got their attention, he says, "Come closer, let me tell you, you love the works of the kingdom. Now let me give you the words of the kingdom. If you want to follow me, if you want to be a part of my realm then Let me unpack this for you. And in a lot of ways, we can say that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's manifesto. It's it's as if he has drawn everyone together and said, you want to be a part of God's kingdom. God's kingdom has come. Let me tell you how we are to live, how you are to live, Christian, in light of this new reality. In other words, here at the inauguration of my new administration, and we all understand this, right? We live in a very political town. There's always someone famous coming through here, right? With a stump speech, with a with an agenda, with a, with a 12-point plan from both sides of the party. People that are campaigning, and and what are they doing when this happens? This person, he or she, is is representing a particular party, but they're representing a set of values. They're, they're presenting a vision. They're saying, if you elect me, this is the sort of thing that you can expect to see happen. This is, this is how I envision life for you as a citizen. And in much the same way, Jesus has shown up, but make no mistake, he's not trying to get elected. He is the king. And he is declaring what is. He is declaring what will be. And for those who have ears to hear, Jesus says, Let me show you the path to the good life. Guys, don't you want the good life? We're going to talk about that more here in just a minute. But but, but make no mistake, and we've said this over and over again, we can't be sort of detached observers to what's happening here. The Sermon on the Mount is not there for us to sort of pick and choose those little juicy nuggets that we think might orient to what we've already decided to do. Jesus says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. I am the king, which brings us to our second point. Okay? Or second phrase I want you to hone in on. We're still in verse one. And at this rate, this could be a nine hour sermon. You realize this. Okay. Have no fear. So it says, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. Guys, mountains are super significant in the Bible. I was reminded of this um, because Florida kids aren't super familiar with the mountains. That's why their youth leaders take them to these places. And I remember, this was 20 years ago, we decided for some reason to do a four-day whirlwind ski trip over spring break to the mountains of West Virginia. And I remember we piled into these 15-passenger vans, we were pulling a trailer. These were some of your children. We drove all night. They should have called this the death train. I cannot believe we all made it back, but somehow we did. And for some of our students, this was their first time not just seeing snow, but seeing mountains. And we were in West Virginia, and you know when the hillbillies are looking at you saying, you guys have lost your minds. You've really lost your minds, right? Snowball fights and sledding down the middle of the road. I mean, just all of it, right? Because mountains were a novelty. Not so with a Jew. Now, go go back sometime. Some of you have aspired, like I have, to read the Bible through in a year this year, and just put a, put a lens on and just notice the significance of mountains as it comes to the experience of God's people. God met prophets on the mountain. God did, brought fire down from heaven with Elijah on Mount Carmel, Right? Elijah goes, hides on the mountain, and God appears to him in a whirlwind. Probably the most famous prophet that we associate a mountain with, of course, is Moses. Moses ascends to the mountain and comes down with the Ten Commandments to receive the law of God. And it's very interesting that Moses, even as he is bringing the law down from, the mount, from mount Sinai, and he's testifying to, to how it is the people should live in God's kingdom. Does this sound familiar? He reminds the Israelites of something, and I think this would have been in the vines very much of every Israelite. Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses is saying, as, as great, as, as significant as you think I am in God's kingdom, listen to this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him that you shall listen. Do you see what's happening here? Miracles like the people of Israel have not seen in, in thousands of years. And people begin to eat, immediately ask, "Is this the prophet? Is this? Is this the one?" And in response to this, Jesus gathers them to what? A mountain. He's assuming the seat of Moses. This would have signified to everyone, this is a guy here who's speaking with authority. And the fact that when he sat down to teach, what does the rabbi do in the synagogue when he teaches? He doesn't stand up right here. And as I get older and my back gets worse, I love, would love to think about the idea of sitting down, Right? Sitting down denoted the idea of authority. And when Matthew says that he opened his mouth, what? Now, why in the world would he say that? Is that not just plainly obvious? Clearly, Scripture does not, every time someone speaks, say, open his mouth and open her mouth. Well, why? why would Matthew say this? It's, it's a Hebraic expression, it's drawn from the Old Testament, probably Psalm 78, to denote the idea, listen, that God himself is speaking. Psalm 78, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark Sayings from old, from of old. What, what is this telling us? Jesus is not simply the great philosopher here, although he is that. Jesus is not simply a great teacher. Oh, he's every bit of a teacher. He's not even simply a great sage, full of wisdom and practical advice. Matthew's making us very clear, this is nothing less than the king of the universe speaking with authority as God and proclaiming his kingdom. And the immediate sense that we should get is, what are we going to do with that? That's, that's going to make a claim of some sort. We, we, we can't just simply brush this off and say, I'll take the little nuggets of Jesus's wisdom, but I want to leave the authority right where it is. That's not the way it works. To receive, please hear this. To receive Jesus as Savior means to receive him as king. And to receive him as king means to receive him as Lord. And this is an important thing that we need to carry through with us in this sermon, because let's remember, secular culture can actually quote a number of things in the Bible, and actually be drawn to them. So so if you went around and interviewed students on a high school or college campus, and asked them, do do, do you know of any particular saying of Jesus, Or, or, or what's one thing that Jesus said that stood out to you? Even if they don't know it was Jesus, you know what they'll be able to quote to you? Judge not, lest you also be judged, right? They might be, they, they, they might be drawn to texts about giving to the poor and loving their neighbor. And by the way, Jesus has incredible things to say about this. But however, you do realize Jesus has a lot of other things to say in this sermon as well. Hard things, tough things. Jesus talks about divorce and he just puts his stick right in the middle of that. Jesus talks about lust and greed. People say, well, Jesus never addressed the issues of gender and sexuality and those things. No, no contrary, absolutely he does. He speaks very clearly in the sermon about about marriage, about sexuality. And what it means to be a follower of Christ means that we say we receive all of it. There's parts of it, and you've heard me say this too, that are going to, there's parts of the Bible's teaching that depending upon the culture and the era and the geography are going to rub us the wrong way. If If the scriptures are not rubbing us, spurring us, making us uncomfortable on some level of our lives, we are undoubtedly worshiping a very domesticated Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Like the values of Jesus perfectly align with all the values that I've decided are important for my life. Isn't that super convenient? No. It might be super convenient, but it's a pathway that leads to destruction. And so here, These are all important. We haven't even gotten to the sermon yet, right? But these are all important things to note here at the onset of this, of how we are to think about it. And let me just encourage you that this season, you spend some time reading the sermon over and over and over again. That, that you become so familiar with it. And remember that Jesus is not speaking in hyperbole. Jesus is speaking real words to real people and just, and just praying, God, what, where do you want to have your way with me? Where, where is my life aligned with your kingdom? Where, where is it not? And, and give me your grace in that, right? So that's the second thing. Third thing, third phrase. We're actually into the sermon now. Blessed are. Of all the things in the sermon, this might be the one that we are most familiar with. These 12 verses contain what we traditionally, the church has called the Beatitudes, the the Blesseds. And the word for blessed here is Makarios. And there's a consensus among scholars, and it's simply this. We don't have an exact English word that translates this word from the Aramaic and Hebraic. There, there, there's not a perfect one-to-one translation. "Makarios" could mean something like to be at peace, to be satisfied. Jonathan Edwards uh, translated this to be happy. In, in a, in, to use a modern word, to 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 flourish, to be satisfied. In other words, a a a, a macarism, not to be confused with macarena. You get what I'm saying. A macarism is a pronouncement. Listen, that if you want to flourish, if in this life, if you want to be happy, and next week we're gonna we're going one of the things I want to do is try to, to show you biblically, your happiness and joy is not at odds with God's glory. They are one and the same thing, and we'll, we'll talk about that next week. They both feed one another. But a, a, a mockery is a, is a pronouncement that if you want to lead the good life, and everybody wants the good life, right? Pastor Paul, I just want to be happy. I want to be satisfied. I want to be content. I want to be joyful. Jesus is going to say that happens to the extent that we live our lives in alignment with the kingdom of God with the values of the kingdom. Flourishing, which is, is the way Jonathan Pennington translates this, his, his idea here is, do you wanna be blessed? Do you wanna be happy? Do you wanna experience shalom? Because guys, guess what? In eternity, we'll have all of those things in spades. It will not be mere duty in heaven. God's glory and commands will be our heart's desire. But here, flourishing is this idea of put yourself on this trajectory, Christian. Value this and not that. And that sounds great, right? Until we start getting into the Beatitudes and we're like, no, wait a minute. How am I supposed to be happy when I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. That doesn't sound very happy to me. How am I to be happy when I am meek, when it feels so much better to say that, to post this, to, 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 to stick the stick in at that point? So the Beatitudes are going to radically turn everything upside down for us. But, but make no mistake, that's what these are. They are an invitation to the good life. And in a lot of ways, you could view the sermon as just that, okay? In fact, Pennington makes the case, and other scholars do too, that, that the Sermon on the Mount functions in a lot of ways like the wisdom literature does in the Old Testament. Let me show you a couple of parallels. So look at, for example, Proverbs 133. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. That's a proverb. That's not a promise, okay? It's a proverb, meaning this. It doesn't mean that you won't have an accident or illness or death in this life. That's not what this means, right? It simply means when we trust in God, it is going to be well with our souls, we're going to have shalom. It's, it's a way of being in the world where we have a soul that is at rest, that is not dependent upon circumstances. That's the way the Proverbs work. And the proverb said, if you want to be, if you'll never be happy if you think that you are going to dwell physically secure for the rest of your life, that's not going to happen. That's not what the proverb is saying. It's talking about an eternal peace an eternal dwelling. And knowing that makes our souls happy. Now, compare that one proverb to what Jesus says at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, and listen to how similar this sounds to like something that Solomon or David would say. This is Jesus speaking. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Do you see that? The wise man, the foolish man. Jesus does not promise that nothing bad will ever happen to us. In fact, your house might be literally washed away, right? You, you might be like Job and lose the most important people in your life, but yet Jesus says it is well with your soul. You have shalom. You have peace with God. Calvin says this, nothing indeed can be more blessed than to live under the reign of God. And we're going to unpack these Beatitudes a little more next week. I just want to sort of orient us to how we need to be thinking and reading this. Final phrase, and we'll be done. And I think this phrase, in a lot of ways, is one of Matthew's, not just central points in the sermon, but in the whole gospel. Look down at verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst thirst. For righteousness, listen, for they shall be satisfied. Because righteousness is a major theme in Matthew. Righteousness is a major theme in the Sermon on the Mount. Because listen, Jesus says righteousness is the path to flourishing. Now let, let, let me define what we mean by righteousness first. First, look, actually let me read a couple of verses and show you how this word is used, and tell you what this means and what it doesn't mean. Matthew 5.20, Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see that word righteous? Same one that's here in the Beatitudes. It, the Greek word is teleos, and it means completeness or wholeness, or consistency. All right, let me, let me read another verse from the Sermon on the Mount where the same Greek word, but listen how it's translated this time. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, Pastor Paul. That was super helpful, right? Same word, teleos. Perfect is not a great translation. Perfect doesn't mean without flaw, perfect means as in consistency wholeness okay let me give you an example I asked our elders this and by the way you're not allowed to google this when I ask you this trivia question okay some of you will and you'll disobey because you won't live in alignment with the kingdom and that'll be on your conscience but anyway only five teams in the history of the NFL have had a winless season right I could ask you to name all all five of those. If you knew them off the top of your heart, I would take your word for it. I would take you to lunch. I I would absolutely, I'll take you to lunch anyway. But you get what I'm saying, right? I'll pay. Five teams in the history of the NFL have never had a, have gone winless for their whole season. The most recent one, of course, was the hapless Cleveland Browns. I love you Cleveland Browns fans. Y'all are so awesome, right? You may have heard a commentator say, you know, if the Browns win a game, win this last game of the season, they're going to spoil their perfect season. You see what the word? Is? Perfect doesn't mean flawless. It means consistency or wholeness. What is Matthew, what does Jesus mean by righteousness? This is so important for us 21st century Christians. Whole person behavior. It means... There's a consistency between the inner heart and the outward behavior. They match. The whole person, please hear this, is not the one that is sinless. The righteous person. This is this righteousness. We're not talking about the alien righteousness of Christ. That God declares on our account and makes us righteous in the sight of God. It's a forensic category. That's a precious righteousness. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the whole person. The whole person who's serving God, who's honoring him, not just with their external piety, but faithfulness and purity and integrity in their inner being, it's an engagement of a person's heart, mind, and soul. Now, do you, do you see a little better what Jesus is meaning here when he says, You're, I tell you, therefore, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Guys, that's not hyperbole. Because what was the sin of the Pharisees? It was, hy- it was hypocrisy, yes. But sometimes we think of hypocrisy as saying something and then doing another. That wasn't all that was going on with the Pharisees. What was their problem? What does Jesus say? When you pray, don't do it to be seen before men. When you give, don't do it to be seen before men. When you practice your righteousness, don't do it to be seen by men, whether it's praying or fasting or giving. Do you see what he's saying? Pharisees did all those. But they did it for the wrong reason. They did it for the praise and the honor and the glory of men. They were not righteous because their hearts were corrupt. This is why we're going to get to the end of Jesus's ministry. And the the counterpart to these beatitudes, the blessings for those of the kingdom, are going to be counteracted by the woes that he calls down upon the Pharisees. Not because they weren't doing the right things, but they were doing the right things in all the wrong way, for all the wrong reasons. Because let me just speak to this as it relates to anxiety. Let me just tell you, as, as when it comes to anxiety, I'm an equal opportunity sufferer, all right? I, I, I am. I, I'm, an, I'm an anxious, I tend to be anxious inwardly worry, obsess, think about things, toss them back and forth, to and fro, a hundred different times. Some people say, you know, Pastor Paul, you've got such an amazing, I, and I do, I remember everything, okay? And you say, what a blessing that is. It is not. It is a curse, let me tell you, okay? So I understand anxiety. There, there's a medical anxiety, there's a psychological anxiety, and God's grace is there for us, along with medicine and counseling and all those things. But there is, let's not forget, there is such a thing as spiritual anxiety, an anxiety that's rooted in the soul. And we have to ask, where does that kind of anxiety, spiritual anxiety come from? Oftentimes, and maybe more often than we're willing to admit, it happens when the inner is not consistent with the outer. Where there is a splitting of the soul, and that the facade that we carry on from the outside causes incredible anxiety because we are afraid of being discovered. We are are afraid of being exposed as a fraud. We are are living these sort of split personality, spiritually speaking. And we have deep anxiety. And Jesus' solution, there's two things to, to note about this. One is yes. And so when that anxiety alarm goes off in your head, when that red light begins to flash on your dashboard, I'm all for medicine and take it. Okay, everybody hear that? Don't, don't, don't let that be your instinct. Say, what is going on here? Be curious about your anxiety. What, what, what is God trying to show you? And isn't it interesting when that kind of anxiety grips us, we try to stuff it down. And that works great, doesn't it? (laughs) No, says no one ever. What is the solution? Lord, I am a sinner. And my inner does not match up with my outer. And I'm bringing this to you. And I'm praying that you would pour your mercy and grace out on me. And, and please don't hear this. Please hear this. Give me a repentant heart. Guys, faith and repentance always go together. And again, righteousness, repentance is not perfection, it is an orientation that says to God, I want to be whole. I want to be whole in my marriage. I want to be whole with my kids. I want to be whole in my job. I want to be whole in my relationships. I want to be whole at work. I want to be the same person. I want there to be a consistency. And when there's not and there often won't be, we don't stuff it down. We say, God, here it is in all its ugliness. And now I'm praying that you would give me a heart that's devoted to you, that is repentant, that leans upon you, that receives your mercy and grace, that that calls things for what it is. And I promise you that that is the only solution to spiritual anxiety. And there's much spiritual anxiety that masquerades as a whole other kinds of anxiety. This is why we need leaders and community groups and friends and relationships to help us process these things as we are walking through them. Last thing I'll say about this, last thing about the sermon. If Jesus is merely a prophet... If Jesus is merely a philosopher, if Jesus is merely a sage, he could have simply dropped this teaching on us and walked away. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus walked a path of suffering to the cross because he knew our inner does not match up with our outer. And that we have sinful hearts, we have duplicitous hearts, we have have spiritual split personalities. And so Jesus said, I know you don't have inerrantly what it takes to be a part of my kingdom. That's why I'm going to the cross to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sins, to give you my spirit, so now you can follow me with a new heart. And the rest of this life, is it not, Christian, is one of repentance. It's one of, by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit, living a life that's in alignment with God's kingdom and not our own. And essentially, that's, that's what we say when we come to the table each and every week. We don't come saying, I'm righteous, I'm whole, And this is why God can receive my sacrifice. No, no, it's quite the other way around. I am not righteous. I am not whole. And Jesus, I need to receive your sacrifice for me. I'm going to ask you just to spend a moment or two preparing yourself to come to the table this morning, asking God to speak to you, asking God for his grace. I'm gonna ask our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements.